This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. There's no question that the practice of medicine is often stressful and at times even frustrating. Sometimes this stress and frustration can get out of hand and can lead us to feeling overwhelmed and even hopeless. And this has been described as burnout. There's good evidence to suggest that well over half of all physicians practicing in the U.S. have exhibited some symptoms of burnout at some time during their career. And burnout not only has negative consequences for the physician, but also for patients, as patient care can often suffer. So what are the symptoms of burnout? Can we prevent them? And how can we manage those who are experiencing professional burnout? We'll discuss these questions and more with Dr. Colin West, an internist in the Division of General Internal Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Colin, this is an interesting topic, and you know I don't recall hearing about it 10, 20 years ago. Is this something new, or have we just really not recognized it before? I think it's more the latter, Daryl. This is something that if you go back and think about definition for burnout, we can think about experiencing in our own training going back generations without question. From a definition standpoint, what does burnout involve? It's a syndrome, it's work associated, which is a really important point and has three main components. Emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, sense of low personal accomplishment. And I mention those dimensions because I think it gets at this question of whether this is a new phenomenon or something that we're just paying attention to more now, because emotional exhaustion is this sense of emotionally being husked out, having nothing left to give in your work. I don't think that's unique to the current generation or time period of medicine. We can all go back in our training periods and think about those incredibly demanding periods where emotionally, we just didn't have it. We just couldn't bring it to benefit our patients or our colleagues. Depersonalization is this idea of becoming callous toward the experiences of your patients, treating them as objects, obviously completely antithetical to our professional ideals. But again, as we go back and think about training in the bad old days, or as some people like to cast them with rose-colored glasses, the good old days, that concept of depersonalization certainly was something that many of us, I think, can remember experiencing. Low personal accomplishments similarly. So I think when we think about what burnout technically means beyond the colloquial sense of, well, you know, I'm stressed and tired and therefore I'm burned out. If we get a little more specific than that, I think the dimensions of burnout are not new. We're just understanding with new language and a little bit more precision what they look like for people practicing medicine currently. As I was preparing for this podcast, I was reading about burnout and I noticed that this has even been noted in medical students and residents. That kind of surprised me. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And to take it even further, there's some very early literature to suggest that even in the pre-medical pathway, there might even be some experiences around this. What this really speaks to, in my view and my colleagues who study this in detail, 
is so much of burnout is about the environments within which we learn and work. And so medical students are dealing with a host of stressors. Medical school is incredibly demanding. There's a volume of information that is overwhelming. There is uncertainty about one's place, one's merit, one's ability to rise to that challenge. There are experiences with patient suffering that for many medical students are among their first experiences with the human condition in that way. So many things that really conspire together to make this such a challenging time. And medical students and residents sometimes are in training environments where they don't have the support to be able to, to nudge them forward in a way that is healthy. Instead, they start to feel this sort of pullback of emotionally, Ugh, you know, I'm not feeling it. My defense mechanism is to treat other people more as objects and not engage empathically as deeply as I might. And they don't have the environment around them to say something more about, yeah, you know, that's part of being human. Instead, what they hear is got to pass the next test, got to get the next high score, got to compete. There's a struggle with that. And so it's not entirely surprising to, to me to see this as early as early phases of medical school. But it speaks to that earlier comment about, is this a new phenomenon or just something that we're paying more attention to? It's, again, more of that latter in my view. Mm -hmm. Colin, is this just a physician issue or uh, has similar burnout issues been seen in nurse practitioners and physician assistants? Absolutely an issue that spans all job roles across the health professions. I will say that the literature pre-pandemic pretty clearly identified that physicians had the highest burnout rates as a profession, not just among the health professions, but among other professions and job roles as well. So part of the focus on physician burnout as this recognition of this problem developed and as our group was leading some of this work dating back nearly two decades now, the focus was on physicians because that was, that's where we saw that the fire was burning the hottest. What we've learned as we've partnered with other groups, leading national studies of nurses, leading national studies to your specific point about nurse practitioners and PAs, some of those with Mayo partners, is that burnout is prevalent among those groups as well. And again, I think that's not surprising because they're in the same mix in the healthcare environment that all of us are. And the same tensions and the same conflicts are present for those folks as well. It has seemed historically like the rates have been somewhat lower in those other non-physician groups. But you know, as I'm sure we'll talk in a bit, the pandemic has changed things. It has elevated the heat level for everybody. And this has become, unfortunately, a much more we're all in this together kind of phenomenon as opposed to, well, we've got it worse than you do. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this is a bigger issue for healthcare professionals compared to um, other professions? You know, attorneys, uh, business professionals, they deal with a great deal of stress. Why are we having so much problem with this? Yeah, I, that's a, a terrific question. It's one that I think we're continuing to get a better understanding of. I want to be clear, physicians have higher burnout levels as a whole. 
But there are pockets within other professions that I have to believe have incredibly high burnout rates as well. And one of the frameworks for thinking about when burnout occurs is a really simple model. It's called the job demands resources model. And what it stipulates is that burnout results when you have chronically high demands in your work roles and insufficient resources to meet those demands. And so if we think about in medicine, everything we do is a high demand task. It's a high stakes activity. There really is no off moment because when you stop paying attention, something can happen to your patient or to a colleague or to yourself that is not the desired outcome. And we get really good in medicine at making really hard things seem easier than they are because of the skill set not unique to physicians. This is across all of our amazing colleagues in healthcare, but because of the skills that we develop. So really high demand, but then we know that across healthcare, resources are stretched thin. And we do a lot with relatively little, at least at an individual level. And so that mismatch is something when you combine that with our obligation to our patients and the way we embrace that as part of our professional ethos, that puts physicians and other health professionals, I think, at an increased risk of vulnerability. Now, other professions, they may not have as sustained the same level of high demands. They may not have the same limitations in resources across the whole profession. But again, in pockets, I'll give you one example. I've never seen a study on this, but I would predict really high burnout rates, public defenders in the legal system, really high caseloads, really difficult job, and really under-resourced. That's my impression. And I would predict that aligned with that job demands resources model and similar to what we see in healthcare, that subgroups like public defenders in law would have really high burnout rates as well. So uh, not a unique issue in healthcare, but I think one that has potentially unique scope and consequences, which is one of the reasons why it has become such a prominent topic in recent years. Mm -hmm. Colin, you mentioned the pandemic and uh, its its effect. Can you speak more about that? How has the pandemic affected clinician burnout? Yeah, it's really interesting because the impact of the pandemic has, I think, had different phases. There's a framework around dealing with disasters or pandemics that outlines emotional phases for individual and community responses. And there's an initial response that is sort of this heroic phase where everyone feels a sense of shared community and we are all rushing toward the problem while we're telling everyone else to get away from the problem. We see this in our EMTs and firefighters and healthcare professionals in a medical situation. And what we saw in the early stages of the pandemic is even though healthcare professionals were dealing with inadequate personal protective equipment and lack of clarity in recommendations and guidelines and understanding of, of COVID, there was something really deeply meaningful about being the people in society that are trying to help and protect those who are ill. And what we saw when we did national assessments of burnout in the early phases of the pandemic was actually lower burnout than we had seen previously, which was initially surprising to us 
But then upon further reflection, I think was a result of that sense of community and meaning and purpose in what we're doing. That was a first phase. We also know that as we realized that the pandemic was not a one and done sort of thing, as we started seeing different variants come out, we saw that you know, different waves of the pandemic, that we became exhausted in healthcare. And we didn't see the same level of support continue to be brought forward to help us deal with all these stresses. So we conducted some follow-up national studies to look at, well, as the pandemic evolved, what happened? And what we saw also matched, I think, what we have felt across healthcare, which is toward the end of 2021, for example, the last good national data that we have, we saw the highest burnout rates that have ever been recorded across healthcare. Over 60% of physicians reporting at least one major symptom of burnout at least weekly. And in some areas, emergency medicine, for example, 85% endorsing burnout symptoms. We've never seen numbers like that before. The other thing that I'll say about the impact of the pandemic, and I alluded to this earlier in how is this look for physicians and other roles, is we've seen for the first time major groups of non-physician health professionals experiencing burnout rates that are approaching or even exceeding what's being experienced by physicians. So for example, ICU nurses in critical care, emergency room nurses, and NP and PA colleagues who are in those environments, speaking to the importance of the environment in driving these issues. And when physicians are working as medicine is a team activity with these colleagues, all of them are in the same mix, experiencing the same environment. And when those environments are frayed to their very last fiber, we see burnout rates in all of those communities rising to levels that we really have not seen before. Yeah, I guess that's not surprising. When you have increased patient demand, limited resources, and a stressful environment, that's kind of a perfect storm. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about the consequences of burnout. What can happen to professionals when they experience burnout and what can result in patient care from burnout? Yeah, this is one of the reasons why we have actually described our growing understanding of burnout as a public health crisis. Because it's not just about the difficulties of, oh, well, I'm under stress and I'm experiencing these feelings. Well, we knew we were getting into stressful careers. We embraced that challenge. If that's all it was and it was nothing more serious, I'm not sure we would pay as much attention to this. We still should pay attention because we should be able to, as I mentioned earlier, thrive in our careers and in our job roles. But the reality is there are serious consequences to burnout. So for the individual physician, there are issues in terms of risk of mental health problems. Burnout has a relationship and an overlap with depression, potentially even with suicidal ideation. There are issues with not engaging in teams or with colleagues in an effective way. When you are emotionally shut off, when you are treating those around you as objects rather than fully formed human beings, it's really hard to maintain positive relationships. Well, it also stands to reason so much of what we do is about being able to bring that forward for our patients. And so the impact is not just on us, but critically, it's on our patients. 
And we know that burnout is associated with medical errors. It's associated with suboptimal professional behaviors. And it's also associated, especially in the long term, with reduced patient satisfaction. And that's an interesting one because in the short term, sometimes patients are more satisfied with physicians who have burnout. Pretty obvious when you think about it, physicians who wear themselves out, who give 20 hours a day to their patient care, are present for their patients at an individual level constantly, are at risk for overextending themselves. But from a patient's perspective, wow, what an amazing care team. They're there for me. I sent an in-basket message through the portal at 11 at night, and at 11.30, I had an answer. I mean, it's pretty incredible. But the individual clinician can't always be tasked with doing that. I want to be clear about that point, though. Patients should not accept lesser care because their clinical teams are dealing with burnout. It's incumbent on the system to provide enough breadth and redundancy in the clinical system to allow patients to have the best possible care without any interruptions or challenges because their care team is, is potentially struggling. This should not be borne by the patient. There are also some issues with even us not being our best selves in healthcare with racial bias and how we treat our colleagues. And then from an access standpoint, physicians who deal with burnout are more likely to retire early. They're more likely to reduce their clinical FTE. They're more likely to turn over and look for greener pastures in other jobs or in other practices. And all of those things are hugely disruptive to the healthcare system, to those physicians and their families, and to patients. So all of this is incredibly disruptive and also incredibly expensive. A gross underestimate comes from a study that we partnered with the Harvard Business School on a number of years ago that just looked at physicians and just looked at turnover due to burnout and estimated that that alone cost the healthcare system around $5 billion a year. So when we talk about extending this to nurses, all of the other costs and become much less conservative and restrictive in our definitions, we're talking about tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars a year just for this one issue that right now we're just spending in our system. And when we talk, as I'm sure we will, about potential solutions and frameworks for that, we need to keep that in mind because we're spending on this right now. So solutions that might look like they're expensive are actually preventive medicine. They allow us to mitigate costs that we're currently already paying so that a modest investment now saves us an incredible amount of trouble later. So which medical specialties have the highest rates of burnout? And the other side of the coin, are there some that have low rates? The first thing I wanna say to this question is no one gets out unscathed. Every discipline, has some struggles with burnout to some degree and other aspects of distress. So we sometimes like to pit specialties against each other and think, well, these guys have it tough and these gals don't or vice versa. And, and people talk about the road to happiness for medical students and residents, you know, radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesiology, and dermatology. I wanna tell you that those disciplines have their own challenges. They have their own stressors. However, when we look across specialties as a whole, 
the disciplines that have struggled the most with burnout tend to be those on the absolute front lines of medical care. So family medicine, general internal medicine, pediatrics, emergency medicine, those tend to be the groups. And it makes sense if we go back to that job demands resources model, because when we think about inequities across healthcare, those frontline disciplines tend to be relatively under-resourced, at least relative to other medical disciplines. And yet they're on the front lines of care. The demands are really quite high. Now, the flip side of that, what groups have been able to develop specialties and work environments within which people can do better? Preventive medicine is one that historically has done pretty well. Dermatology has done pretty well. And I say that with a, a certain degree of respect because dermatologists, at least the ones I know, they see a lot of patients. They're busy. They work really hard, but they're able to align what they do and resource what they do in a way that allows them to connect with what matters so that they're able to enjoy those careers, stay passionate about those careers. And I think that is a defense mechanism against burnout that they're able to benefit from. Well, coming from the Division of Preventive Medicine, I can tell you that's a pretty happy group. So uh, I, I, I can understand <laughs> that. So the electronic healthcare system, you know, when that was being developed, that was supposed to make our life easier. And we were gonna have a great time with that, make patient care much more streamlined. So what's happened? So the issue with electronic medical records and these systems is really one of unfulfilled promise. There have been studies done that look at the user experience for electronic medical records that demonstrate really, really low customer satisfaction. And that resonates with most clinicians. There are certain things that electronic medical records can do quite well. They facilitate some of the parts of our job that don't necessarily align with our core professional values, like generating an accurate billing code. And they don't facilitate good documentation, good communication with patients, things like that that are really so central. And I say this is unfulfilled promise because I don't think electronic medical records are inherently a bad direction. I just think that we put the cart before the horse and what we need to have is a mindset that we are insistent upon, that electronic medical records facilitate our relationships with our patients, not that the patient is sort of a bystander in our relationship with the record, which is how it often feels in practice. And so when we develop these kinds of tools, and I'm not going to pick on any particular EMR company here, they're all kind of in the same boat together. When these tools are developed, they need to work much harder to prioritize how are we helping the clinician engage with their patient? Because if you help me engage with my patient, you are supporting what I call the MVPs of well-being, meaning, values, and purpose. And the electronic medical record becomes an ally, a facilitator of those positive relationships. If, however, the electronic medical record becomes this burdensome tool that I have to feed information into in a cumbersome way, now you have detracted from my meaning, values, and purpose because you've taken my attention and my time away from my patient. I still need to give that to my patient. So now what you've done is forced me to do work outside of work 
or what others have called pajama time, which is this idea of interfacing with the electronic medical record on nights and weekends, when we really should be engaging with the other aspects of our lives. And so I think what we've seen with the electronic medical record is it is an easy target as a driver of burnout. And I think some of that is fair because where it gets in the way of efficiency and those key aspects of our medical practices, it is a problem that needs to be improved. But I also think it's become a little bit of a scapegoat because it's really easy for us to ignore other aspects of what the EMR does allow us to do. Working at Mayo and seeing folks that have coming from all over the world in different systems and being able in a way that we couldn't do 10 years ago to access records in the room with the patient by clicking a button is really pretty incredible. So there are certain aspects of the interoperability that show signs of that promise, but as yet it remains unfulfilled. And I think as clinicians, we really chafe against the, the problems that we see with the electronic medical record when it's viewed as a hindrance rather than a help. Mm -hmm. Well, some of the issues that lead to clinician burnout seem so enormous. Is there a way to prevent this? What can be done? The best way to think about prevention is to step back and understand what drives burnout in the first place. And so there are a number of different ways to think about that. I talked earlier about the very simple, let's think about demands and resources and how those are matched. And what we do in healthcare all too often is we say, you know what? We're gonna have to peel back the resources here. You need to become more efficient. Well, what's that gonna result in? If you have the same demands and reduced resources, that's a recipe for burnout. So we need to anticipate that that's predictable. And the idea of trying to prevent something from happening when we are instituting policies and practices that are designed to push us toward burnout, not intentionally, but are designed to deliver that outcome is something that we really need to reflect on. The other drivers are also opportunities for interventions. So I'm not gonna go through the entire list of drivers of burnout that have been demonstrated by Christina Maslach and others who are sort of the founders of the modern understanding of burnout, but some of these like workload, uh, community, values alignment, these are things that individually and in our organizations, we can prioritize. And if we establish practices and policies that connect our healthcare professionals with meaning, values, and purpose, and if we make that one of the evaluation lenses, hey, we want to roll out this new policy. We need to do it because we have this demand as a practice. Okay, no problem. How is that going to affect how I connect as a healthcare professional with meaning, values, and purpose? And if it promotes meaning, values, and purpose, you know what? We've got a winner. If it's going to separate me from meaning, values, and purpose, if it's going to reduce my resources or increase my demands, let's hold on a second and think carefully about the costs and the benefits of this initiative. And we need to think holistically about the impact on employee well-being, healthcare professional well-being. All of that connects with the relationships and the consequences of burnout affecting our patients. It's not just about us, it's also about our patients. And so when we think about prevention, I go even further upstream and I put on a preventive medicine hat actually and say, 
you don't prevent things optimally after they've already happened. You prevent them in a primary way by actually setting up environments and structures within which people are pushed towards flourishing and thriving, as opposed to predictably leading to distress. Paul Batalden has been quoted as talking about every system is perfectly designed to give the results it gives. And I think we need to be reflective about that in healthcare and say, look, when our healthcare professionals are experiencing distress, do we blame them as individuals? Or do we say, you know what? These are dedicated, passionate, committed people. Those are all of my colleagues. I am amazed by the dedication of the people I work with. Healthcare is an amazing profession filled with incredible people. You take people like that and then they start to erode their emotional connection, their ability to put patients first and personalize them in a very human way. That's a human reaction to a system that doesn't support them properly. So the solutions really come from how do we put people first? How do we prioritize their relationships with what matters to them most? And in healthcare, that's usually our relationships and our ability to serve our patients. And then from there, every solution flows. Does it make sense? Does it not make sense? And it can be as something as simple as, can I use a badge reader to log into my computer so I don't have to type a password 15 times a day? And it can be as complicated as, what's the right panel size in a primary care environment to allow me to serve my community in a sustainable way? Both of those run through the filter of, does it connect me with meaning, values, and purpose and promote better patient care? That's where the solution set's going to lie. You know, I think back to very, very early in my career when I just finished my residency, one of my senior colleagues sat me down and said, you know, for a successful and long career, get a variety of your life. You know, don't just see patients. See patients and do education, maybe do some research, do some administration. But he said, a variety is the key to longevity. He didn't know about burnout back then, but I think that's what he's talking about. I think you're absolutely right. And I agree completely. This idea of honoring the variety of interests that we all have as human beings, both within medicine and outside of medicine, mm -hmm. I think is a really important recipe for well-being. It mitigates against burnout. There is nothing easy about medical practice, nor will there ever be. But that's not the problem. We actually embrace that. We wanted that when we pursued medical training. We want to be able to thrive in those stressful environments. And that requires that we have the support from our environment to allow those talents and that dedication to be brought forward in a way that we can keep coming back to it. We can restore, we can renew and keep coming back to it day after day, week after week, year after year over what really for most people is desired to be a multiple decade career. This is not do this for a few years and then flame out and we'll find the next person to take your place. Right. It's not what we want. It's not what society needs. We can sustain that flame, if you will, to sort of mix the analogies with you know, burnout. Let's talk about something hot in a positive way. That flame of passion and commitment to a medical career is something that I think the profession as a whole 
has to take a greater responsibility for nurturing. Mm-hmm. So let's say a clinician recognizes some of the features of burnout in themselves. What should that clinician do? The first point to this is we're actually really bad at recognizing this in ourselves. And so not recognizing it or, not, or thinking that you're okay isn't necessarily a free pass. You we think got, others recognize it first? Sometimes, yes. Hmm. And that, that's okay. a great point. There are studies to show, for example, that when we look at validated metrics of, of burnout, 89% of practicing physicians in these studies identified their well-being as better than the well-being of their peers. So just think about that. I mean, I'm in Minnesota. This is Lake Wobegon territory where everyone's above average, right? But mathematically, we know that's not true. 89% of us can't be above average. And 70% of physicians who are in the bottom 30% for well-being think they're above average. So our self-awareness is pretty limited at times. So two points stem from that. One, having confidential metrics where we could just answer a few questions and get a self-check of like, how am I doing? Can be really helpful. And there are tools for that. There's something that was developed at Mayo called the Wellbeing Index, and it's available free of charge for individual use. And it's completely anonymous. You set up your username, your password, and you can check in yourself when you want to. Nobody else ever sees that information. But it also, the second point, which you alluded to, I think really brilliantly, is that if we don't have self-awareness, often our colleagues and our friends and our coworkers in non-physician roles, if we're talking about physicians, they will notice. And what they will notice is, hey, you know what, Dr. West, I remember when you were bright down the hall and you were excited about the diagnoses that your patients had and that discussion with the consulting services and just your whole demeanor. You don't seem like yourself. Are you okay? They'll notice those subtle changes sometimes before we will. And it doesn't have to rise to the level of a major disruptive or unprofessional behavior. In fact, those are relatively uncommon because we put such a premium on how we treat our patients and our colleagues that for the most part, if we get to the point where we've actually crossed the line of disparaging or harming another person, we're really in crisis. That's a sign of a major crisis problem. It's the more subtle things. It's the not quite the extra mile all the time, not quite able to fully engage with a patient or their family. Maybe the niceties of the social interactions in the workroom, people kind of withdraw a little bit and our colleagues will pick up on that. Sometimes they don't feel comfortable saying anything about it, but it can be really, really important to set up environments where we're looking out for each other and we're recognizing, hey, you know what? Are you okay? You don't seem completely your normal, amazing self. How can I help? And just restoring that sense of, oh yeah, I have people who do care about me. I have people that are in this together. That community can be part of a healthy working environment. One last question. Let's say we have a clinician who's identified as having burnout. Do we have the management tools in place to get that clinician back into the environment where they can have a happy, fulfilling, and vibrant career again? The answer is a qualified yes, partly because 
burnout has been a relatively recently recognized entity and partly because it's not a disease diagnosis. It's a work-associated syndrome. Some of the treatment plans or programs are not as well-developed as they should be. This is not generally a situation where, oh, you have major depressive disorder. We need to think about maybe medication, maybe therapy, things like that. It's not as clear cut as that. So I think what we have to recognize when we're talking about solutions is first, once it's been recognized, which is already a hurdle, can we be very careful not to blame the victim? Because this is rooted in the environment primarily and explore solutions that allow passionate individuals with tremendous skill sets to remember what they bring to the table and be allowed to bring that to the table in an environment that doesn't wear them down. And so the solutions have to be in tandem. How do we help the individual optimize their resilience? People talk about resilience a lot. Healthcare professionals actually are really high on resilience at baseline. It's not that we need to be brought up from a deficiency. That said, we have a strain on our resilience because of the stress of our work. And so giving people the tools and the skill set to have positive or adaptive coping strategies in the midst of those stressors is relevant. And so how do we do that at the individual level, but pair that with attention to what is it about your working environment that is getting in the way of you thriving and showing people at the individual level, if you're experiencing burnout, we view that as the canary in the coal mine. We don't need to just try and help you be a better canary. We see that as a signal that there's something going on in the coal mine, and we're going to work with you to improve that environment. And that shared responsibility is, I think, where we see the greatest potential for benefit in helping people who are experiencing burnout recover from burnout and get back to that full engagement in their career, that connection with their purpose that we all want for them, for ourselves, and we want to bring to bear for our patients. Well, Colin, this is such a big issue. We could easily spend another half hour talking about more things related to professional burnout, but can you give maybe two or three key points that maybe summarize our discussion on healthcare professional burnout? Yeah. First of all, I appreciate the opportunity to discuss these issues more broadly. It's just such an important issue for our profession to be able to meet our primary objective and honor our core values. I think one key point is just a recognition that this is a common experience in healthcare. This is not about just a handful of people who weren't cut out for the stresses of the profession. The prevalence is such that this is a common experience. Related to that, it's important because with that commonality, that prevalence, it has major consequences, not just for physicians. Certainly, there's a moral obligation to address these issues because any employment should be an opportunity for someone to do well and experience success and joy and positive relationships. But there is a major impact on our patients and on the healthcare system as a whole. This is expensive. It's associated with suboptimal care. It doesn't allow us to meet our full goals on behalf of our patients in healthcare. That's, that's a second key point. And then the final key point that I would say is the most effective solutions are gonna connect healthcare professionals with meaning, values, and purpose. If we can 
prioritize that framework for thinking about solutions. Then we can figure out what ways of making our work more efficient are most helpful. What ways of engaging teamwork or leadership training or other potential solutions are going to be most effective in a given work unit, a given department, a given organization. So ultimately, if we prioritize developing learning and working environments within which healthcare professionals can thrive, we will turn this around and have healthcare be this remarkable, deeply, personally valuable profession where we're able to thrive in service of others. That's what we all got into this for in the first place. That's what we see being a little bit shaky in recent decades. And we need to get back to that for the benefit of the entire system. We've been discussing healthcare professional burnout with Dr. Colin West, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic. Colin, thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. And thank you also for spending so much of your career studying this and uh, helping all of your colleagues with uh, professional burnout. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.